you're all required to attend. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 7. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter, verse 18. I'll pray, and we'll get into our text for this morning. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Oh God. We pray, remove any veil and any obstacle from the hearts of your people. Remove anything that would stand in the way of you revealing your glory to us. Holy Spirit, where you are, there is freedom. And so we're coming into your presence by faith. We come boldly to receive grace in time of need. We come before the throne of grace. And we pray that we would, uh, we would be faithful in taking advantage of this freedom of access. Christ, we pray, be exalted. Free us from... Um, from any form of, of legalism or, or its opposite. Free us, free us from any attachment to lesser glories because your glory exceeds, it excels, it's better than. And we pray, heal us from any of our, our blindnesses. We come to you asking your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. We pray, show us your glory. We pray with Moses boldly now. Show us your glory. Amen. Amen. If you'll remember from the previous passages or, or another time, maybe you've gone through 2 Corinthians on your own, this, this chapter and really the book begins kind of on the defense. Um, Paul has been telling the Corinthians who are not really friendly to Paul right now. He had just been telling them how ridiculous it would be to require the Apostle Paul to show his credentials to Corinth, the church that he planted. Um, and and those who were rejecting Paul, they were giving him attitude saying, by what authority do you tell us how to live or what to do? Or like, how come your gospel is the right gospel? Things like that. And while all of this was personal for Paul, because he knew these people, they had been friends, it was so much more than personal. The real matter of importance was not that Paul lost some good friends. It was that the gospel was being neglected. 
the rejection of the apostle, which was going on in Corinth. So Corinth was having issues with the authority of the apostles. Uh, it was this rejection of the apostolic authority was inevitably tied with the rejection of the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching was the gospel of grace and the establishment of the life of the Spirit. So in rejecting the gospel, men will turn to licentiousness or legalism, just two opposite ends of the spectrum that can, if you're the Corinthians, you're overachievers, you can do both at once. Okay, you can be a legalist that, that sins on your spare time all the time and they're proud of it. That's, that's the Corinthians. But the Corinthians, they've taken one step forward now in rejecting some of the more gross sins that presented themselves in the church. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians. But they've taken two steps back in, in this. They were mistaking their tough-on-sin attitude for actual holiness, which it's not. They, they mistook their, their toughness on the sinner as actual real Christ-likeness in their lives. And that wasn't what was happening. John chapter 1, verse 17, and we'll be repeating this verse a couple times today, says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Truth without grace kills. And it's this graceless understanding of the law. It's an understanding that is veiled. It's an understanding without the focus on Jesus that Paul calls a ministry of death a ministry of condemnation. The law without Christ condemns. That's the only thing it can do. The law without the gospel will bring death without resurrection, which has never been the intention of our God. Now, I want to get a couple things clear right at the beginning. This doesn't mean that Paul says the law was bad. Paul says what he calls the ministry of death. He says it's glorious. It came with glory. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? The scripture contains repeated affirmations of the law's goodness if used properly in its intended, uh, in the intended spirit, the spirit in, in which it was uh, given. But we come to passages like this or others like it in Romans where Paul uses some strong language here. He calls it the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. And it's easy to quickly conclude that the law in all its iterations is just simply bad wrong. The law of Moses without Jesus is bad. The veil is taken away in Christ. It's not the law that's taken away. It's the veil through which we are separated from the holiness of God. That, that's taken away. Uh, even some of the, the weird laws, you know, we can see through the lens of Christ now as things that anticipate Christ, things that are fulfilled in Christ. And with our, our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus himself, the law itself then comes into focus and we see it for what it is. The problem was and continues to be that in embracing the law or any other set of rules or standards and embracing those things at the expense of Christ and in the rejection of Christ. It's at the expense of grace and rejection of grace. The law is fulfilled in love. That's what we're told in scripture, right? Our God is just, we believe in justice, he's just to forgive. These two things are not in competition with each other. When we separate the law from these graces, it kills, it condemns, really it confuses. And this is what Paul would save the Corinthians from. They're taking those two steps back and going back to Judaism, maybe, some understanding of the Mosaic laws being something that it was never intended to be, which was transformative. The law doesn't transform people. Christ transforms people. The law doesn't set you free. The, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
So he would spare them from this confusion of using the law as if it were the gospel. And he shows them what the law is compared to the gospel. One is vastly more effective and much more beautiful. While one condemns, the other transforms. One is a veil. One has a veil over the heart, blinding the heart, preventing it from seeing the truth. The other is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Go back to verse 7. Let's get started. Uh, Verse 7, it says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Pause there for a second, even though there's a comma. Paul is referring to a story that takes place in Exodus 34. You're probably familiar with it. After 40 days with God on the mountain, which is the second time he'd done this, Moses comes down with a new copy of the law written on stone. He had broken the first set, remember? It was at this meeting with God, while Moses was with God on the mountain, that he had made that bold request, show me your glory. And the Lord says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. But he does say that he will hide him in the cleft of a rock. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So the the Lord does this for Moses. He reveals something of his glory to Moses, what we call sometimes the afterglow of his glory. And he proclaims his name to Moses. All this is in Exodus 34. And then he renews the covenant with Israel. He says, this is the covenant. And finally, he repeats several laws, and Moses writes down the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing. And his brother Aaron and the other leaders were afraid to come near him. And so they devised this system. Moses would sometimes wear a veil. He would have the veil off when he spoke the words of the covenant. And then he would put the veil back on when he was done. And our verse says, Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. That sounds like it was just too bright to look at for too long. But it also says which glory was passing away. So it didn't stay super bright. It, was, it would fade. And that's key. As amazing as the glory was on Sinai, as amazing as the glory of God was in the face of Moses in the book of Exodus, it was a fading glory. It was temporary. Now, Paul is not trying to downplay that glory, not at all. In mentioning the shining face of Moses, he's reminding everyone of just how amazing all of that really was. The law wasn't dry and dusty. It wasn't without spiritual experience. It was amazing, terrifying, glorious. It came from the mouth of the living God. But it was temporary. Don't make it what it was never intended to be. So Paul says, if that ministry, if that event which defined the people of God, if that kind of spirituality was so glorious, you couldn't even look it in the face. Verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? We're advancing. There's something better than that. Farther up, further in. If it was that good, how much better will this be? He calls the gospel the ministry of the Spirit. We know he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity here, but we we also know that the Spirit is the essence of a thing. It's the reality behind whatever is perceived. And he calls the law the ministry of death. The Spirit brings life, reality, truth. To compare the law with the gospel is to compare death to life. You're comparing a corpse to a living person. 
Now, again, the coming of the law, came, it came with glory. It was a beautiful corpse. And the, the, the glory was made, you know, it made the face of Moses shine. And that, that, what, what made it, his face, you know, go through that transformative event, it was the proclamation of the goodness of God. It wasn't just wrath and judgment. It was God's goodness. But all of that was only foreshadowing of what the Spirit would do to the life of the person who had been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If only hearing about the glory of God caused Moses to glow, if only seeing the leftovers of God's glory left him so stunned, how much more glory will there be if that amazing God from Sinai actually comes and lives in us by his Spirit? Answer, a whole lot more. That's how much. Go to verse 9, read on. It says, For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, which it did, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no respect, no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. There's some things that you can just see on the, the, the surface here in these verses. Paul has favorite words, doesn't he? Uh, he really wants to talk about glory, uh, evidently, and that's the, that's the feeling I'm getting. Hopefully you're following. He uses some version of the word glory three times in verse 7, once in verse 8, twice in verse 9, three times in verse 10, twice in verse 11. He says glory or glorious or something like that 11 times in five short verses. I think we know the theme of the passage. Also, the kind of language he uses to describe the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the, the life of the Spirit, it's almost exaggerated. He's not saying, just saying glory, 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 glory to 11 times to get those word count up, you know. He's saying that the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious, verse 8. Is that the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, verse 9. He, he's talking about the glory that excels or exceeds, verse 10, which is much more glorious. Not just more glorious, much more. Exceedingly much more excellingly glorious. The gospel is more than whatever the law had to offer. It's not just different then. It's not just, it's not just better because it's more effective or because in our cultural context, the gospel makes more sense than the law or something like that. The gospel isn't better only from a utilitarian point of view because it works and the law doesn't, though you could say that. That's true. The gospel is better because it more accurately and more fully displays the glory of the living God. That's why it's better. There's more God in it. It's more glorious. The law hasn't been undone just because, just because its time was up. It's been undone because it has been surpassed. Read verse 10 one more time. Even what was made glorious, that was the coming of the law, the old covenant. It was great. Moses' face glowed. It was amazing. But even what was made glorious, the law, has no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. If you light a match in a dark room, it's the brightest thing you see. If you light a match and hold it up to the sun and then try and stare at it, you can't see the match anymore. Look long enough, you can't see anything anymore. Yeah. Okay? But the, the glory of the one thing is no glory. Why? Because there's a glory that excels. The glory that excels outshines all the competition. This glory that excels is the ministry of the Spirit by which God himself dwells within his people. A few years ago, we did a study through the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings, and, and nearly every week, we started out by saying something like, Jesus is the best, or Jesus is better than fill in the blank. 
right? Jesus is better than the prophets, better than angels, better than the patriarchs, better than Joshua, the temple, the Sabbath. Hebrew shows all of these things. This passage in 2 Corinthians would fit well within that book. The new way, Paul says, is better. It's a better glory. The new glory is more glorious. And that really is saying a lot because the old way was pretty cool. I love to consider how far Moses had come before we, we come to the story of the glowing face. <laughs> Remember his first encounter with God, the burning bush, and God says, don't draw near this place. And he takes off his shoes and he covers his face because he's on holy ground. From the beginning of their relationship, God makes it clear that there's too much of him for Moses to safely handle. And Moses gets it. He hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. That's what it says. And that line, don't come any closer. Do not draw near. That's what God says again and again. He says it at Sinai after the Exodus, after all the plagues of Egypt, where God shows his might and his power and the people of Israel have seen it and they gather around Sinai in Exodus 19. God, he says, put up a fence around the mountain. Don't get too close. If anyone crosses the fence, if anyone touches the base of the mountain, you kill them. Don't draw near. And it, it describes the scene at Sinai. It says Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, and that's from heaven, by the way. That's nobody's trumpet. There was just like a trumpet in the clouds up there somewhere. It became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. I imagine Moses speaking. I don't know what he said. It's not recorded. I imagine something like, please stop. <laughs> we can't take any more of this. That's what the people said. That's what they told Moses to say. They're like, you go talk to him. We can't handle it. Then Moses came down upon Mount Sinai. Sorry, then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Now, at that point, Moses has gone through a lot of things since the burning bush. And their relationship is obviously developing. A lot had happened between those two meetings. But this idea is still very clear. That's a big God, and there's a lot of him to handle. There's a weight of glory there that's too heavy for anyone to bear safely. Now, a few chapters after this initial visit at Sinai, there's the time when Moses and Aaron and the leaders, they eat before God. We talked a bit about this when we were doing our, our communion study. And uh, it says they, they went up on the mountain and they, they ate before the God and they saw the God of Israel. So you see Moses getting closer and closer to the Lord. He's getting closer and closer and he's moving further in each time. And you think, well, well, now they're pretty close. And, and eventually it gets to the place where it says he spoke to God or God spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. They spoke face to face or literally in the Hebrew, it's voice to voice. They're, they're that close. And you think, okay, you've seen it all at that point. When you and God are at the small talk level of your relationship, like you're there. But it is after that point when Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I can't. You wouldn't be able to handle it. And, and you see this, this idea of the glory of God and Moses' inability to draw near fully. And Paul says, that's, that's, just the, that's just the preview, guys. That's the ministry of death. We're talking about the ministry of the Spirit here. That's, that's the ministry of condemnation. We're talking about the ministry of grace. Do you see how different this is? Why would you go back to that one? There's a veil. 
There's a veil over Moses' face. You cannot behold Christ. You can't behold the goodness of God. And then you read on into the New Testament and you get to John where John says, we beheld his glory. It's a different ministry. We're at a completely different level than Moses was, and it's better. It's a glory that surpasses. It's a glory that excels. When he says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Or in verse uh, 11, he says, for what is If what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. He's talking about the relationship people have now with the living Christ without any veil between. Now, of course, it's a different veil, but we make a big deal about the fact that the veil was torn, right? The veil in the temple that separated people from the holiness of God. And at the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, that veil was torn. There is a similarity between these veils, the veil that was over Moses' face and the veil in the temple or the veil in the tabernacle. Both or any kind of veil is meant to conceal, right? It's meant to separate. There has to be a separation. And in the book of Hebrews, again, it says, we enter in, we draw near, we go through the veil that is his flesh that has been torn which is one of the reasons why we make such a big deal about communion every Sunday is because we want to get to where Jesus is. We want to get to where God is. We want to be in the presence of God knowing that there is a holiness there that is more than you can handle. And we say, I think that's worth it. And if we go through the veil, if we say the veil is torn, what's the veil? The veil is the flesh of Christ. That's what the New Testament tells us. Then we go to the body and blood of Christ in order to enter into the holiest of all, into the presence of God, and be changed, or even be killed. Now, I'll come back to that idea in a second. We have this idea, whether we're going to admit it or not, but we go through the passage that Paul is going through with Moses and the Ten Commandments and the smoke on on Sinai and everything, and you read through all those passages, and inevitably, the New Testament 21st century Christian is going to heave a sigh of relief when they say, I'm glad we don't have to do it like that anymore. Like, I'm glad we don't have to do the animal sacrifices and stuff. And we see the glory of God on Mount Sinai, and we get this wrong idea that while the the glory of God and the majesty of God and the, the full force of the holiness of God was like cranked to 11 in the book of Exodus, And the ministry of Jesus was, in part, just there to, like, calm dad down. You know? Like, the Son of God came and convinced everybody he's not that bad, really. Like, this is wrong-headed thinking, right? Jesus never said he came to make the glory of God any less. In fact, again, revisiting what John said is we beheld the glory of God. No one can say that unless they beheld Jesus. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten of the Father has made him known. You have uh, in in the upper room, the disciples saying, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Disciples of Jesus Christ have seen, have encountered, have, as John says in 1 John, seen and handled the things that Moses was denied. And this is why Paul is saying, do you really want to go back? Do you really think the law or that way of life without the spirit of God in you, do you think that would be better somehow? No. Perish the thought. He says it's better this way. 
Now, continuing on this idea that Jesus does not turn down the volume, so to speak, you know, that's, this is something we see in the New Testament as well. You have, you have Paul writing to Timothy saying, God who alone has immortality dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable. It's unapproachable. And then you read in James, draw near. And all of Sinai is flipped on its head. The, the line of do not draw near, do not draw near. is like, no, we're priests now. We're priests and kings. And we are told draw near and he will draw near to you. And you compare those and you're like, but it says it's unapproachable. It's like approach, approach anyway, do it anyway. It's like, I don't think I can survive. It's like, yeah, I know, I know. That's actually by design. You'll see, stay with me. And you, and you, you read all of this and say like, well, no one can see God. He's un. Unsee, unbeholdable, but says, you know, but fix your eyes on Jesus. That's kind of a theme of the whole New Testament. Is look on the glory of God, that which cannot be beheld, let that be what your vision is fixed upon. We, we see passages, uh, you know, like the unapproachable light, and then we're invited to approach. And this, this idea that Paul is expanding here in 2 Corinthians about more glory, the glory that excels more and more and more, we see with unveiled face, this kind of confidence in the nearness that it, uh, with God that is available to his children is how Paul can pray those crazy prayers like in Ephesians, where he says, I'm praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And the astute Ephesians among the recipients would be like, no, that's not possible. You've told us things about God, and it doesn't sound like I can contain him. And Paul's like, I'm praying for that anyway. It'll burst you to pieces, but I'm still praying it. He says, there's the love of God who surpasses knowledge, height, breadth, width, surpasses knowledge, but I'm praying that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul, you're not making any sense. I can't do that. If you put that stuff in my head, my head will break. He's like, exactly. Now we're on the same page. Exactly. Again, the, the, the law wasn't bad in itself, but to use it as gospel is a tragedy. Okay. In, in the Psalms, we read precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And the only way that can really be is because is through resurrection, right? We rejoice in resurrection. He calls the law the ministry of death, and it's glorious. He says, but there's more glory over here. There's more glory in the life of the Spirit. He calls it the ministry of condemnation, but there's more glory in the ministry of grace. And for Paul, and I think the other apostles and the other writers of the New Testament, I don't think they, they were trying to say, Yes, back then, if you had gone up the mountain, it probably would have killed you. But now we can just kind of coast through and have a, a Sunday church event and, and call it good. Like now the glory, we, then you couldn't look at the glory, but now our cameras are better. And so we can have a glory that you can just like look in a picture frame, an art gallery kind of setting and write about it and then like move on. I believe Paul and the other apostles are, are keenly aware that the light which they are approaching remains unapproachable. That the volume of God's voice is still deafening. That the holiness of the mountain of God is still deadly. It's deadly. And they're saying it's worth it. It's worth it. 
Like if to go into the presence of God and be completely destroyed as what I am and then completely reborn as what he would make me. Yeah, that's worth it. That's what I am signing up to do. In fact, Jesus, who John says again, is the glory of God. We beheld him. We beheld his glory. Jesus says, take up your cross. That's how we're going to get there. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he said that the one Christ call, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay? Because to enter into the presence of God is to come to an altar and to present your body as that living sacrifice, believing fully in resurrection, believing that the holiness of God is what melts us into pieces. Paul is saying, if it was that glorious then, and Moses glowed, and that was cool, but we had to cover it up with a veil, what if there were no more veils? What if there's no more separation? What kind of glory would that be? It's one that is best to be held on your knees, I think. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. It's like, that's why I'm talking like this. It says, we have this hope of access to God. We have a hope that our way is better, that the law, the law is inferior to the gospel. We have such great boldness. We have such hope. And in, uh, in chapter four, it begins in verse one. He says that we don't, we have this ministry as we have received mercy. We do not lose heart. And there's this theme that goes through second Corinthians over and over again, where Paul, who's suffering greatly, is saying, I have such hope. I have such trust. I don't lose heart. I have such confidence. He is so sure that this glorious God is seeking this kind of unveiled relationship with his people he says, I can talk like this. I can, I can say that you're being draw, drawn into the holy places. I'm confident of this because I know what kind of God tears veils. Unlike Moses, verse 13, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He says, I'm not communicating the glory of God to you like Moses did. Moses kind of covered it up, right? He says, I'm, I'm not doing that. I am offering you the uh, the pure, unadulterated gospel for you to look at straight. Now, the, the Corinthians had been kind of trying to separate themselves from apostolic authority, from the structure, the rigid structure of the apostles' leadership. And they would have been able to say, well, maybe, you know, like Paul, he's really cramping our style. Uh, he's kind of getting in the way. The apostles' leadership, it's getting in the way of our freedom in the spirit which is, Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way freedom works. He'll talk about that. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 2. This is the, the apostle Paul and the other apostles, they're getting in the way of, of our spirituality, of our way of being Christians. And so we want to we remove all those unnecessary things like Paul and just get to the basics like Moses had. Paul's saying, Moses is the one who veiled the glory. Like, I'm, I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm not trying to give you less of the glory of God. The glory of God is in Christ. They were, they were like, uh, it'd be like if someone like me who needs glasses to see anything clearly was upset that my glasses were in the way of what I was trying to see. And if I just remove this thing that was in the way, that maybe I'd be able to see it more clearly. And that's what they're doing. They're removing the gospel and then trying to look at the law. And if you remove Christ from your, your framework, from how you see things, the law is going to be very blurry. You're not going to be able to make sense of, of the law or the God who gave it. It's going to be blurry. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be unsettling because they're trying to remove all this extra stuff 
from their vision. He says, no, 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 put the glasses back on. The thing is, is if you, if you have Christ, you also get the understanding of the law. This is how he talks about the blindness and the, the veil that is removed in Christ. Take a look at verse 14. It says, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Unless you will concede that Christ is the point of the Old Testament, that he's, he's the whole point, the Old Testament won't, won't make any sense to you. So he says, if you're removing the gospel of grace, if you're removing this fact that Jesus is where you see the glory of God, if you're just putting that as like a secondary issue and saying, yeah, 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 Jesus, but really what we need is the old stuff. We need Moses. He says, then there's a veil over your heart. There's a veil over your eyes. You're not going to understand the very thing that you're prioritizing. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil is on their heart, verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. He says there's a veil over the reading of the Old Testament, and that veil is taken away when one turns to Christ. Uh, I think this is true not just for the reading of the Old Testament. This is for how you see the entire created world and all of existence. It won't make sense until you realize the truth that Paul said that all things are created for him, by him, through him. Everything is for Jesus, to exalt Jesus the universe that you live in, the planet you live on, the people, every person you've met and all the people you haven't met were created in order to give glory to Jesus Christ. And when you put that aside and make that secondary, then a veil comes up and the world stops making sense. Certainly the Old Testament stops making sense. You don't get it. You're like, what's the point? If I do these things, I, I can't do those things. How, how does all this about a temple make any sense to me? Well, Christ is the temple. How does this, all this stuff about Israel and like, I, I don't think I've, I've met someone of the tribe of Zebulun. So what does that have to do with me? But Israel's called God's son until God has a son. And then you realize, oh, it's all about Jesus. Like it is about Christ. The world, history, human history as a whole, the entire Old Testament, it's about Christ. And when one comes to Christ, the veil is lifted. And not only do we see God, we see all things in his light, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, who paraphrased G.K. Chesterton, who probably stole it from someone else. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And this is our hope. Not that we would have greater insight into certain biblical trivia. Uh, not that we would... Um, just have a worldly wisdom that assists us in living our lives and making our relationships better or whatever. Our goal is to turn to Christ and to see him high and lifted up, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The kind of freedom or the kind of liberty that he is talking about here is, a, is specifically a liberty of access, okay? It's not saying if you get the Spirit, he's your cheat code. You know, he's your key that opens all the doors and you can do whatever you want as long as you have the Spirit of God. Like, that's not the kind of freedom that he's talking about. It's about the, the freedom of draw near, Versus Moses' lack of freedom saying, do not draw near. It's a freedom of gazing on the face of God, which Moses had couldn't do. He wasn't allowed to. You can't see my face and live. 
It's a freedom of seeing the glory of God in Jesus, our mediator, where the people of Israel were denied that, where Moses had to wear a veil and they weren't able to see the glory that passes away. It says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And again, this spirit dwells in us. The glory of God on Mount Sinai with the trumpets and the smoke and the clouds and the earthquakes. That's the God who wants to dwell in you, to abide in you. And he says, we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We're not like Moses. When he's, I feel like he's saying, we're not going back, you guys. We're not going back there where there's veils, where there's separation, where there's, okay, you can go this far, but no further. He says, I want you to have the fullness of God, where all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. I want you to be where that is. That's where I want you. If you thought it was good then when you weren't allowed to come near to God, how much better is it going to be when he says, draw near, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. This is a good rest he's inviting you to. Now, he says something interesting. He says, we, we behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And that could mean a couple things. Uh, I might remind you of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says we behold as in a mirror da uh, darkly, or as in a glass darkly if in the King James, but then face to face. So it's like we see in part now, but then, then there will be fullness. And certainly there's an element of that that's, that's very true. Like we see God now through Jesus Christ, through the eyes of faith, but there is coming a time when we will see him face to face. Like Job prayed, with these eyes I will see God. And, and Job also prayed in, in Job 26, where he says, these are the mere edges of his ways, but the thunderings of his power, who can understand? So we're living in that, right? We understand that. But I don't think that's the only thing Paul is talking about when he mentions a mirror. If, you, if, if we go outside uh, in, in the sunlight, you would be able to see my face, I'd be able to see your face because of the light of the sun, right? But if you got a mirror and reflected that sunlight into your face, again, you'd go blind for the second time in the sermon, you'd go blind, okay? <laughs> but but you, would, you would be very, very bright, and we would be able to see you and see the glory of that sunlight in an intensified way. And then you would be carrying about you the light of the sun in a way that everyone who's also lit by the sun in, in a way does not. He says, we're beholding with an unveiled face, meaning all the glory is there, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The Lord is shining as in a mirror on you, and it's intensifying his glory in your countenance. When you encounter the Lord, when he lifts up his countenance upon you and gives you peace, that has an effect on your countenance, on you. His glory is meant to be made visible in his body, in his people. And and I believe this is more of what Paul's talking about rather than the, we know a little bit, but then we're going to know more, like he, he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. Because he says this, this intense glory that can be beheld in your face after you've spent time with Jesus, he says you're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You're getting more glorious the more time you spend with the glorious God, which is exactly what you see in the book of Acts. After the apostles are bold in court, they, they realize, the, the Pharisees, the judges, all those people, they realize they had been with Jesus. And it became evident because they were being transformed from glory to glory into the image of God, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There is a great need to 
delight in this kind of glory. Um, the Corinthians, you know, we don't have their response. We weren't there. We only understand them of what we can understand, you know, reading in Paul's letters. Um, but at some point in time, at some point in their faith journey, the glory of God that was completely available to them, offered to them, paid in full, there for them to behold, that would transform them fully into the image of the Son of God, that became less desirable than something else. The law or their perception of what freedom is, I should be allowed to do these things, or their, their moral high ground that just made them feel really good because they followed the rules so good. Something became more desirable, more satisfying to them than beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Paul says, if you, if you reverse this, if you're going to look at Jesus instead of whatever has held your gaze, not only will you have a view without veils, which is fantastic, but this is his method of changing you from glory to glory, from transforming you. The law can't do that. Whatever it is that you prioritized over the gospel is weak and dead and cannot change you into a godly person. He says, but looking at Jesus, just beholding the face of God has a transformative power that doesn't just give you glory. It doesn't just show you glory. It makes you glorious. You become more like Christ. He says this is done by the Spirit of the Lord, who again dwells in us. This is what we want. This is what we're striving for. This is what we want to, to run towards, is this more glorious ministry. Uh, we're not just choosing one, you know, gospel over law because gospel looks a lot more comfortable. And I like the whole sheep in green pastures thing, but not the Sinai and the thunder thing. He's still loud. He's still great. He's still awesome. The difference is that he invites you now into that glory. The difference is not that God got quieter. It's not that he got less holy. It's not that he got, uh, you know, just pastel colors are now his favorite and the thunder and stuff went out of fashion. None of that's real. The difference is not the, the power of God. He still floors you. The difference is he says, come on in. The water's terrible. <laughs> come on. It'll kill you. Yeah. Yeah, it'll kill you. And I'll be there with you because I know about death. I know what happens next. We'll do it together. To be in the holiness of God, to be in the presence of a God who floors you like that and then gets you back up again is what we have been invited to in Christ. It's what Paul is calling the church back to. Not to just an awareness of holiness, but to an experience in holiness to where you're being transformed from glory to glory into the image of God himself. Let's pray for that. Jesus, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in the kindness that you show us that you have allowed us to draw near as priests, as kings, as your children. You are a good God who knows how to give good gifts to your children. We ask for the Holy Spirit that does this transformative work in our lives. We pray, God, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Bless your church with your spirit. And we pray once more boldly with Moses, show us your glory. Amen. Please stand.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.